thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. This morning we're going to finish our study through 2 Corinthians, and as we finish going through another book of the Bible, I just want to share something important with you. Uh, It's been said, it's not how many books of the Bible we get through, but how many books get through us. Think about that. It's not how many books of the Bible that we get through, but, but how many books get through us. As we go through books of the Bible, I want to make sure you understand it's not that, hey, we just want to get through books and say, hey, we've made it through, we've looked through these things, but how have these books of the Bible impacted us? I don't want you just to leave with some intellectual knowledge or some information that you've gained from 2 Corinthians. My desire is that this would transform your life, that there would be a change that happens because of what we've studied through 2 Corinthians. And so um, we need to apply and take the, the challenges that we see here. This morning we're going to look at the conclusion that Paul shares with us here in 2 Corinthians. And, you know, this is one of my favorite conclusions. Pretty much every uh, epistle has a, a conclusion that's attached to it. And I, I really love what we see here that Paul uh, shares with us. He's going to be sharing with us nine important things. He's going to start with six challenges and then finish with three encouragements. And with these six challenges that Paul starts with, they're really going to connect to things that he's already shared with us, kind of reminders of, this is what I want to leave you with. I've shared all these great truths through this letter, and now I want to conclude with these six challenges of things I want you to put into practice, I want to see applied to your life. And then he's going to end with these encouragements. And the great thing about these three encouragements is they really show us how we can do this. Oh, we got these challenges, but how is it possible to accomplish those challenges? Well, the final encouragement that Paul gives us is going to be an encouragement for how we can actually do what God tells us to do. And so let's see uh, what he shares with us here in this conclusion, and more importantly, how we can be changed by it. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 11 through 14 says this, Finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Paul starts this conclusion with finally, which would be an important word to use. Okay, this is how I'm finishing up everything that I'm going to say to you. And he says, finally, brethren, farewell. Now, for those of you who are not using the New King James Version, many of the versions it's going to say, finally, brethren, 
rejoice. Because the Greek word that's used here, uh, the, the best translation of that is rejoice. Oftentimes they would use it in a departing type of thing. And so, you know, instead of saying farewell, they would say rejoice, which is probably why, you know, the, the translators did this. But actually the, the accurate way to uh, translate this word would be rejoice or, or, or take joy. And it, and it fits with the context of this conclusion anyway, of all these different things that Paul is throwing out as he concludes this letter. Hey, I want you guys to rejoice. I want you to take joy. You know, there's so much that Paul has shared in this letter. We have so many reasons, and the the Corinthian church had so many reasons to rejoice, to take joy. And I want to remind you of some of those things that we've looked through in this letter. We should rejoice because in chapter 1, Paul tells us, for all the promises of God in Jesus are yes and in Him, amen, to the glory of God. We should rejoice because in chapter 2, we're told, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. We should rejoice because in chapter 3, the Lord is spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, there is freedom for us. We should rejoice because in chapter 4, he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus. Chapter 5, God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Chapter 6, God says, I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters. Chapter 7, godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Chapter 8, though Jesus was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor that you through his poverty might become rich. Chapter 9, God is able to make all grace abound to you. Chapter 10, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Chapter 11, Paul shares all those wonderful things that he was willing to suffer for for Christ's sake chapter 12 God's grace is sufficient for us his strength is made perfect in weakness and in chapter 13 we have that wonderful prayer of Paul uh, asking the Lord that we would do no evil and that we would be made complete so it's it Paul says Finally, brethren, rejoice. There there are plenty of reasons. I just shared one from each chapter. There are many from each chapter, and that's just from one book of the Bible. There are 66 books of the Bible. There are hundreds and hundreds of reasons throughout Scripture of why you and I as believers in Christ should rejoice. There's no reason for us as Christians not to be full of joy, not to have reason to rejoice. So often we look at the circumstances of life and, and the hardships that come, and yes, we face those, but we lose track so often of the things that we do have to rejoice in, what God has done for us. And I want to encourage you with the reality that we have so much to rejoice in. Now, with each one of the challenges that Paul's going to give us, the six challenges he shares in this conclusion, I want us to end each challenge just kind of with a question to ask ourselves, to, to ponder ourselves. And so with this first challenge to rejoice, the question I want to pose to you and to myself is, do we regularly take time to rejoice in what God has blessed us with? Is this something that each day you really ponder and think through what God has done, what reason you have to rejoice? I think it's a great habit to get into before you start dwelling on all the negative things in life and all the requests that you have. Just start with all the reasons you have to take joy, to rejoice in what the Lord has done. And if you would say to yourself, you know what, no. 
I don't regularly or maybe I rarely rejoice in what God has blessed me with, then I want to challenge you as I started with that statement, you know, you're not allowing the word of God to work through you. Yeah, you might know, you might read reasons to rejoice, but if it's not causing you to rejoice, then you've missed the point. God doesn't just want us to know why we should rejoice. He actually wants us to do it. He actually wants us to put it into practice on a regular basis. So the first important challenge that Paul gives us is rejoice. The second one is become complete. You know, this Greek word here translated complete is a very interesting word. It means to mend what has been broken or rent to restore back to proper order. So in the Greek culture, this word would most commonly be used for mending nets. You had a tear in your net, you would have to mend it back together. You would use this Greek word. If you had a broken bone that needed to be mended back together, then you would use this Greek word to describe that. So restoring something back to its original state after it's been damaged. And so Paul, in using this word, he's saying, hey, I want you to restore things back to their proper order so they can function the way they were meant to. Just like a net, when it's torn, it should be restored back to its proper order so it can catch fish. You know, if it has that hole, it's not doing what it's supposed to do. Your arm, if it's broken, let it be restored so it can actually function the way that it was meant to. Now, the New International Version, if any of you have that translation, I think it gets the heart of this Greek word more accurately when it says, strive for full restoration. Yeah, that's kind of the heart of what Paul is sharing with us here is he wants us to be restored. He wants things in our life that are out of order to be placed back into the proper order that God has designed so that we can function properly. You see, the reality is all of us through our lives, through our sinful choices, through just difficulties and things, you know, there are times where we get out of line, we get out of sync, we get out of order, we get out of harmony with what God has designed for us, how he wants us to live. And so we need to say, you know what, Lord, I need your help to restore me back to how you want me in these different areas of my life. Things get broken and they need to get Fixed. And so Paul's challenging us with this. Now, last week in chapters 12 and 13, we took kind of four spiritual tests. And the purpose of these tests with what Paul shared with us in those chapters was to examine our lives and see how were we doing in our relationship with the Lord in four different areas. And the goal was if you saw areas that were problem areas, that were areas that needed attention, that we would actually do something with that, that we would ask the Lord to help us change. And, you know, this is the reality. As we take an inventory of our spiritual lives, we'll recognize, hey, you know what? Restoration needs to happen in this area. I'm not in the proper order over here, and I need the Lord to help me get back to that because I want to function spiritually the way that God has designed me to. Now, one of the challenges for us when it comes to being restored and getting back to that proper order is, are we content with where we're at? 
I know there's been times in my Christian life, and maybe you have as well, where you're just kind of like, you know what, I'm content with where I'm at spiritually. I'm content with how I'm doing, and there's not some great pursuit of growth. That, you know what, hey, yeah, I know I have some issues, but I'm doing well here, and yeah, that's fine with me. I'm okay with just staying where I'm at. Uh, And, you know, there's not a desire to seek the Lord to grow and grow and grow. And, you know, as Christians... That should never be us. We should never get to a place where I'm just content and satisfied where I'm at spiritually because none of us in this life are ever going to get to a point where we've reached perfection, where we've reached a point where it says, you know what, I don't need to grow anymore. I mean, look at me. I've arrived. That's not going to happen. There's always areas of growth. There's always issues that need addressing. There's always problems that need change. And so we should always be Lord. I'm grateful for the growth that I have, but I don't want it to stop. I want to continue. I want to be more like Jesus each and every day. So with this second challenge to be restored to our proper order, the the, the question I want to pose to you and to myself is, are we satisfied and content with where we're at spiritually, or do we seek God to restore us to our proper order? You know, if you're in a place and you're honest with yourself and you're like, you know what, I'm satisfied, I'm content, or at least I'm living that way because I'm not pursuing growth, then once again, you know, the word of God's not working through you. You have information, but it's not transformation. And I would encourage you, God wants to do more in us. He wants to help us grow, and so seek him for that. So the first important challenge Paul gives us is rejoice. The second challenge is be restored to the proper order. And the third challenge he gives us here is be of good comfort. Now, you'll remember that this whole letter started, the first half of this letter is all about comfort. Paul spends the first seven chapters on comfort, and he deals with seven things that we probably normally wouldn't associate with comfort that we can take comfort in. And now as he's concluding, he's like, guys, remember all that I wrote about comfort. Be of good comfort. Put that into practice. Don't just let that be information that you've heard from me. Actually live it out. And I want to remind you of these things that Paul shared with us in chapter 1. He tells us about how we can take comfort in suffering. God comforts us in our suffering so that we can comfort others with the comfort that we've received from Him. And that comfort should comfort us. That should be something we take comfort from. In chapter 2, we're told that We can have comfort in restoring a believer in sin. Because God restores us, because God forgives us of our sin, he calls us to do that for other people as well. And we should take comfort in that wonderful reality. In chapter 3, we should take comfort in the new covenant. Man, that was a wonderful chapter where we see the glorious new covenant and all that we have in it versus what we used to have in the old covenant. What we have in the new covenant is far superior and we're blessed to have that. And the Lord says, take comfort in all that you have under the new covenant with Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, we can take comfort in trials. We're told even though our outward man might be perishing through trials, the inward man is being renewed day by day spiritually. Yes, trials are difficult, but the thing we take comfort in is not the trial itself, but what it produces in our life. It produces so many wonderful spiritual things. In in chapter 5, we're told we can take comfort in death. 
You know, as a believer in Jesus Christ, there is comfort in death. There's not comfort in death for those who don't believe Jesus, but for those of us who do, Paul tells us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We can know that when we die, we immediately go to be in the presence of Jesus Christ in heaven, and that should bring great comfort to us, and it should bring comfort to us for our loved ones who knew Christ, who have passed away, that we can be confident where they are, and it should bring us comfort in that. In chapter 7, we're told we can take comfort in repentance. Godly sorrow, Paul says, produces repentance leading to salvation. Repentance is such a wonderful thing because it brings us to the place of salvation in our life with Jesus Christ. We should take comfort in that. So Paul spends the first half of this letter on comfort comfort all these areas in our life where many we wouldn't even connect with that word but yet he says look at all these areas you can take comfort in and now his challenge is of be of good comfort that's what God desires of us and so the third challenge to be of good comfort the question here I want to pose to myself and to you is are we being of good comfort Do our actions display that we actually take comfort in things like suffering and trials and death? Are these things that we truly can take comfort in and we see the biblical premise here, but we live it out? It's not just information that we know, but when we're in the midst of a trial, in the midst of a, a death, that we truly can take comfort with what the word of God tells us. We live it out. And if the answer is no, then once again, You're not letting the word of God work through you. It's just information that you haven't been transformed by. And that's not the ultimate goal. So the first challenge is rejoice. The second, be restored to our proper order. The third, be of good comfort. And the fourth challenge that Paul gives is be of one mind. Now, as you remember, not only in 2 Corinthians, but also in 1 Corinthians, a big problem that the Corinthians had was this lack of unity, was division all over the place, division among each other, division against Paul. And so there's this big problem, and one of the solutions to this problem of lack of unity and division is being of one mind. Now, as we looked at this, we noted that this doesn't mean that everyone needs to think exact same thoughts or agree on everything. Really, the heart of being of one mind is that all believers would have the mind of Christ. If we would all have the mind of Christ, then we would have one mind and it would change in a drastic way the way in which we conduct ourselves together. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul gives kind of the, uh, a more detailed explanation of this one mind, mind of Christ idea. It says this, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each one esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made of himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. 
Paul shares these several things that are, are connected with our mind. Notice he starts by saying like-minded, one mind, lowliness of mind. But he sums it all up. If you want to be like-minded, if you want to be of one mind, if you want to be of lowliness of mind, then there's something that has to happen. All of you need to have the mind of Christ. That's the challenge as we hear this one mind challenge. That's why Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He's saying, you guys need to have the mind of Christ. And that was one of the the big problems. They didn't have the mind of Christ. Instead of being humble like Jesus was, they were prideful. Instead of being selfless like Jesus was, they were selfish. Instead of being uh, those who would esteem others better than themselves, they just esteemed themselves better than everybody else. You know, this was some of their problem that they had. And so Paul says, you know what? You want to fix the, the, the lack of unity? You want to fix, you know, these things that are happening? You need to have the mind of Christ. For the body to function the way that God designed it to, that's essential. Because we're so selfish in our own fleshly nature that we desperately need to change the way in which we think about ourselves and others and have that mind of Christ which esteems others better than ourselves, which loves others like Christ loved, and it drastically changes the way in which we treat one another. So the fourth challenge to have the mind of Christ, the question I pose it's simple. Do we have the mind of Christ? Are we humble and selfless and willing to esteem others better than ourselves? Are we willing to die for them? That's the, that's the mind of Christ. That's what he demonstrates in actions. You know, something that we need to understand is the things that we think ultimately determine the way in which we act. And this is why it's so important to have the mind of Christ because Much of my life, I had the mind of Matthew, not the mind of Christ. And the mind of Matthew is selfish and self-centered and wants me and my stuff, and I do not live the godly way I should. The mind of Christ is what enables me to be humble, to esteem others, to love others. And this is why it's so important to have this mindset, because it impacts the way in which we live. And so if you just say, well, I know those are important things. I understand them intellectually, but it hasn't actually impacted the way in which I live my life then once again, the word of God hasn't worked through your life to transform you. And God wants to get you to a place where you have the mind of Christ that impacts your actions. So first, rejoice. Second, be restored to our proper order. Third, be of good comfort. Fourth, have the mind of Christ. And fifth, Paul tells us to live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Another problem the Corinthians had, and it was really kind of because of their lack of unity and their division, was there was no peace. You know, that's a byproduct of that kind of behavior towards people. And so Paul wants to share with them that, you know, they need to live in peace. And the letters that he wrote to them, he shared a lot of different things that would help foster peace, that would encourage peace, that would help them grow in peace. But the challenge that he leaves them with is a reminder that, yes, all these things, if you apply them to your life, your lives will be a lot more peaceful with others. But you need to make a choice to live in peace with those who are around you. You know, Paul gives the same challenge to the church in Rome, but he shares something with that that I want to highlight for you because I think it's good to note as we take this challenge to live in peace. Romans twelve eighteen it says, If it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. 
So we have the same challenge. Hey, live peaceably with everybody. But notice how he starts this. If it's possible, as much depends on you. I think the first thing important to note that it's not always possible to live at peace with people because for peace to happen, both parties have to be willing to have it. You can be willing on your end. If they're not willing on their end, guess what? Peace is not going to take place. I mean, we see this in a more extreme uh, example of like a terror group like ISIS. If you're a Christian and you're up against them, it doesn't matter how peaceful you are, they're never going to have peace. They're going to seek to destroy and kill you. Uh, and so, you know, there are times where peace is not possible because the other group is not willing. But what I really want to emphasize here is the second thing that Paul shares. And he says, as much as depends on you. He's saying, you know, make sure you are doing everything possible to make peace happen in that relationship. That if there is lack of peace, it better not be on your part. If there's not peace happening, it better be because the other party isn't willing or wanting or doing something that's hurtful. It should not be on your end. That's the challenge here. And if everybody would take that challenge within the body of Christ, we'd have peace. Because both parties would be doing this and both parties would be living in peace and making a choice to do this. You know, Jesus is referred to as the Prince of Peace. And I love that title of him. And I think, you know, as believers, too often we're at war with each other. You know, we're against one another and it totally goes against who Jesus is and what he has designed the church to be like. And we need to be those who are at peace, not just with other believers, but we should seek to be at peace with the world as much as depends on us. And if it's possible, because sometimes it's not because of how the world responds to us. But on our end, we should seek to do all we can to live in peace. So with this fifth challenge to live in peace, the question I pose is, as much as depends on us, are we living at peace with others? Well, maybe I should put it this way. If I were to go and speak with the people that you spend the most time with, would they describe you as a peacemaker or they describe you as someone that more kind of uh, stirs up strife, that causes problems. You know, how would they describe their relationship with you? Oh, yes, this person's always looking for peace and, and seeking to bring peace. Or, oh, man, anytime we're together, there's war because of how they act and how they respond. You know, how, how would they speak about you? And, and if you're thinking, you know what? Yeah, I'm not a peacemaker. That's not what I'm doing in my relationships. Well, That's not the way that God wants you to live. And I would challenge you to really ask him to help you be transformed in that area of your life. So first, rejoice. Second, be restored to our proper order. Third, be of good comfort. Fourth, have the mind of Christ. Fifth, live in peace. And the sixth challenge here that Paul gives us is he says, Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. Now, in that culture, the common greeting of the day was to greet one another with a kiss on the cheek. You see that, you know, throughout cultures today. Uh, in Scotland, that was something that they did. I'll have to say, when I first got there, that was a little weird for me. I felt like, you know, you're kind of invading my personal space. But, you know, I got used to it and realized that's just a way that they show uh, warmth and affection, and that's how they greet one another. But notice that Paul doesn't just say, greet one another with a kiss. He says, greet one another with a holy 
kiss. By using this word holy, Paul is wanting to describe, hey, I want there to be a godly and appropriate warmth and affection that you guys show towards one another in the body of Christ. Now, I think if Paul was writing to us today and our cultural difference from the way in which they greet one another, he might say greet one another with a holy hug or greet one another with a holy handshake. But the point is, you guys need to show godly warmth and affection and love as you greet one another. You know, and I think this is so important within the body of Christ. And, you know, I have been to churches, and maybe you have as well, where the reception was so cold, where no one talked to me, no one greeted me. You know, it just felt like no one cared if I was there or not. There was no love. There was no affection. You know, and that's just such a a wrong way in which the body of Christ functions. And that shouldn't be how it is. You know, people should be welcomed and you should feel wanted and there should be love. And and I love the fact that we have that here within our fellowship and it's something that the Lord challenges us to do. And so once again, we come to this sixth challenge and I give a question for us to ask ourselves is, do we greet other believers in a godly, warm and affectionate way? Are you someone who seeks to go out of your way to make people feel loved and appreciated and wanted? Or are you someone who, you know, kind of rejects and makes people feel not wanted? Yeah, if the answer is, you know, I don't really care to greet people, to welcome people, to make people feel loved, you know, that shouldn't be your heart, because the heart of the Lord is that we would all do that for one another. You know, Jesus was warm, he was affectionate, he was loving, he demonstrated that to people, and as we desire to be more like him, That's something that we should put into practice as well. So Paul starts this conclusion by giving us six important challenges. Rejoice, be restored, be of good comfort, have the mind of Christ, live in peace, greet people in a godly way. Now, if you're anything like me, you sometimes come to these types of challenges in Scripture and you respond with, there's no way I can put this into practice. There's no way I can do the things that God is commanding me to do here. And this is why I love the encouragement that we have in the final verse, verse 14. That doesn't end in verse 13 with all these commands, these challenges, and then boom, it's done. We have 14, which brings us three encouragements, which really remind us of what we have at our disposal to do what God has challenged and commanded us to do. And I hope this encouragement encourages you like it does me. Verse 14 says this, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Paul gives three great encouragements here, but but notice what he connects it to. It's connected to the Trinity. It's connected to the three different persons of the Godhead, the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. And this is another one of those great passages to come to for those who don't believe in the Trinity, one God and three persons. Paul brings up this reality, but I think he's ultimately wanting to leave the Corinthians with, I want you to recognize all that you have in God. Not just what you have in Jesus, Jesus, but what you have in the Father, what you have in the Spirit, look what God has given to you that is regularly available to you to take advantage of. And Paul just shares one thing about each person of 
the Godhead. And it's a, an encouragement to us. And, you know, I want us just to, to look at what he says. Obviously, there's many more that he could say about each person of the Godhead, but he just leaves with one and an encouragement with each one. First, he talks about Jesus, the grace of our Lord Jesus. Paul connects Jesus with grace. Something important for us to remember is that all that we've been given from Jesus is because of his grace. You know, if you look through scripture, there are certain words that jump out. They're used so often and the meanings of them are so important. Grace is one of those words. And I think, you know, often we we don't fully grasp how important it is or or how uh, significant it is. But I think to better understand what grace is, it's good to be reminded of what it's not. You see, when a person works, they receive a wage for what they have done. When a person competes with an opponent and receives a trophy for their performance, it's a prize. When a person receives appropriate recognition for their long service or, or high achievements, that's an award. But notice with all of those, you do something, either work or compete or achieve in order to receive the reward or the prize or you know, the wage. But what about when a person is not capable of earning a wage, can't win a prize, doesn't do anything to deserve a reward, but receives the gift anyway? That's grace. Because grace is unmerited, undeserved, and unearned favor. It's God giving to us that what we can't work for, that what we don't earn, that's what we don't deserve. And I think something important for us is to remember is in Christ. We've been given everything we need for a relationship with God, and we've been given everything we need to be obedient to what God has commanded us. And guess what? All you have to do is place your faith in Jesus to get it. The day that you chose to accept Christ, it was available to you, all of it. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. Why? Because it's in God's grace that we get it, not by what we earn or achieve or deserve, because we don't deserve it, but it's yours. At your disposal, God has given it to you in Christ. That's a a great word for a side study on your own. Go through scripture and look at the term in him, in Christ, especially Ephesians chapter 1. See all the things that are connected to that. All that you and I have because we are in Christ, because we're connected to him, like every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Adoption, redemption, forgiveness. I mean, all these things come because we're in Christ and it's God's grace. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We don't, you know, do anything to get it. He just gives it to us. And so I hope that it encourages you because as we're challenged here with these different things, remember what you have at your disposal is yours because of God's grace. You don't have to be like, well, if I'm really good Christian today, maybe God will give me what I need to do what he says. No, it's already available to you. Whether you're a good Christian or not, whether you're successful or failure, it's yours in God's grace to you. So the first encouragement Paul shares with us is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second encouragement is the love of God. Speaking of the Father, you know, the love of God the Father to us is probably the biggest encouragement we have in Scripture. And we could spend days on end talking about all the different areas of Scripture that reveal to us how God loves us. And we don't have time to do that. But I do want to emphasize something, not how God loves. I hope as we've gone through scripture, I hope you come to a great recognition of how God loves you. Obviously, the most important one is the most 
commonly quoted passage of Scripture, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. The greatest demonstration of love is that God was willing to send His only Son, Christ, to die for our sins so that we could have a relationship with Him. But as we're looking at encouragements for doing what God has commanded us to do, I want to encourage you with something about God's love for you that we're told in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. It says this, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, something we need to understand is nothing... Nothing. And look at this list that Paul gives of all these things that people might think, well, that would separate me from God's love. No, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And I think too often we think, well, I haven't prayed enough today. I haven't read the Bible enough today. I haven't done enough good works or whatever. And God doesn't love me the same. I've been separate from him and his love. That's not the way it works. Nothing can separate us from God's love. Everything he's given us is because of his grace. And we need to realize as we seek to live an obedient life, the love of God is always available to us to give us what we need. I was reading a commentary and he was sharing about a man uh, in his church that said this. The thing that has sustained me through the years in spite of some very trying times is not so much my love for God, because sometimes that fails. But the thing that has kept me on the godly path is my growing awareness of his love for me. That should be the thing that drives us forward. Not, oh Lord, I'm going to be so loving to you, but remember how much he loves us. We love him only because he first loved us. It's his love that should drive us and move us and motivate us. And I hope that encourages you as you seek to live for the Lord. His love is always available to you. So the first encouragement is the grace of Jesus. The second is the love of the Father. And the final encouragement, we're told, is the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, this Greek word translated communion is the Greek word koinonia. I brought that word up before. It means fellowship. Some of your translations translated the fellowship of the Holy Spirit because that's what it's referring to. This word that's translated communion is speaking of this intimate fellowship that we have with the Spirit of God. It's an amazing thing. We could spend many, many teachings just discussing the Spirit of God and the fellowship we have and the reality that when you and I make a decision to accept Christ into our life, at that moment the Scriptures tell us we are indwelt by the Spirit of God, that He lives within us, that back in the Old Testament, God dwelled in the temple, that's where His dwelling place was, but now we are the temple of God. He dwells within us, and we have this amazing, intimate fellowship that back in the Old Testament they didn't have. Only one person, the high priest, one time a year could go into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God, and we have the presence of God dwelling within us all the time. We have complete access anytime we want to the throne where we're told, come boldly to the throne of grace where we can find mercy and help in our time of need. And so it's an amazing privilege, but also the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which I want to encourage you, is helpful. Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit in many ways, but one of them he calls the helper. 
Because that's what he does. He helps us obey God. He empowers us to do what God has called us to do. That's one of his roles within us. He helps us. And I want to encourage you with that because as we think, man, these six things, how can I ever do it? Well, in and of yourself, you can't. In your strength, you can't. In your wisdom, you can't. But guess what? You have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. And he can give you all the wisdom, all the strength, all the power to accomplish what God has called you to do. So as we now have studied through another book of the Bible, I want to remind you with the challenge that I started with. It's not how many books of the Bible we get through, but how many books get through us. You know, it's my prayer that this book and any book that you are personally studied and then the books that we continue to go through, that it wouldn't just be, hey, I need information to gain, but no, I'm going to be transformed by the wonderful truths that are there. You know, this letter has many, many challenges that God wants us to apply to our life. And my encouragement to you is remember this truth, the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God the Father, The fellowship of the Holy Spirit is with you. It's available to you every day to give you what you need to do what God has called you to do.